0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. The director's previous movie was a failure. The screenwriter's career had been ruined by the blacklist. The lead actors had little film experience and seemed all wrong for their roles. And the plot was based on an obscure novel about the unlikely friendship between Ratso Rizzo, a New York Street hustler, and Joe Buck, a Texas dishwasher who wanted to get rich servicing, uh, servicing sex-starved society women. No one could have predicted that Midnight Cowboy would become a Hollywood sensation and signal a dramatic shift in American popular culture and become the only X-rated movie to win the Oscar for Best Picture. Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Glenn Frankel tells the story in his latest book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, liberation and the making of a dark classic it's published by farah strauss and Giroux, and i'm very pleased that it brings glenn frankel to our show now hello hi
1: leonard nice to be here
0: your earlier books were about two classic american westerns from the 1950s fred zinnemann's high noon and john ford's the searchers both quite different from midnight (laughs) cowboy
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, they're all cowboy movies, I guess, in one sense or another. But uh, That's about it. I wouldn't want to stretch that analogy too far.
0: Oops. Did I lose you?
1: No, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, You know, Midnight Cowboy is is a much more modern movie. It's an adult movie. Um, when you do High Noon and Searchers, everybody thinks you're going to do uh, Shane for your yes. third. <laughs> and uh, I Stage love coach. Shane. <laughs> I had, I had nothing, nothing to add about Shane. And, and Midnight Cowboy is such a target-rich subject, not only because of the movie itself, but because of the era it reflects and was made in, the late 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a time of political nervous breakdown in the country. I mean, a bit like, our problems today, uh, the Vietnam War is raging, all these things are going on and New York City is beginning to deteriorate in, in many mm-hmm. serious and important ways. At the same time, there's this cultural revolution going on, of course. And so it really was a rich subject. And uh, I, you know, I, I love doing it. I learned so much from it at the times, things I didn't know, even though uh, you know, I was in New York and going to Columbia University in, in that era. Uh, So uh, uh, it was a good target.
0: You didn't mention that 69 was also the year of Woodstock, the Manson murders, Altamont, and the trial of the Chicago 7.
1: Yeah, there was a little bit
0: going on. (laughs) A lot of uh, interesting things happening. Now, um, should I assume that with such a famous film, there are many conflicting versions of various aspects of the stories? Were you able to interview any of the people involved?
1: Well, that was the beauty also of doing a movie. I mean, it was made in 1968, came out in 69, so it's like 52 years old. But a lot of the people involved in it are still alive today. And for some of the ones who have passed away, of course, close friends, uh, folks, intimate family members. I mean, there were people to talk to. So, yeah, I mean, I was able to talk to both Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, to the producer Jerry Hellman, to a number of people. Uh, who were able to walk me through it, and you're right. I mean, it's not so much that the versions are conflicting among them; it's that the stories tend to get a bit. I mean, over time, you know, it's like any stories that we tell each other. You you sort of smooth out the rough parts. Everything gets a little uh, told over and over again, especially with Voight and Hoffman, who are mm. great actors. At times, I had the feeling they were giving me a, a performance, if you will. Mm. Uh, but a genuine one. I mean, one they truly believed in. And memories fade. Stories change. The story, for example, of the X rating of the movie has changed mm-hmm. very much over the years. Various kinds of things. But that's kind of part of the pleasure of doing this kind of research. Uh, you get to talk to people and you compare different versions. And uh, I've come up with my own for a few things. And people change. John Voigt was very liberal
0: at the time of the, the film was made. And now he is a staunch conservative
1: who believes that the last election was stolen. He is probably Donald Trump's biggest supporter in Hollywood. And you're right. Back in the day, he was a good left winger. In fact, he took his girlfriend, Jennifer Salt, and went to part of the trial of the Chicago Mm -hmm. 7 to support in solidarity with the defendants. So, you know, we didn't talk about that. We talked about Midnight Cowboy. Mm -hmm. Is he still uh, proud
0: I, of it, despite the, uh, the fact that, uh, I guess, uh, a lot of Trump supporters might find it offensive?
1: Well, the short answer is yes. It it was a very fascinating session when I finally got him to sit down with me because, you know, I'm an old Washington Post reporter. I worked at the Post for 27 years. I didn't think he would necessarily appreciate that very much, Mm -hmm. given his politics. And he didn't. He asked a couple of pointed questions to start out with. And I kind of, you know, tried to give my best even-handed answer. But then he looked at me and he said, but you're here to talk about Midnight Cowboy. And suddenly his expression changed. I mean, his eyes kind of lit up and he sat back. And from then on, it was all sweetness and light for two and a half hours. He's very generous about his work with Dustin Hoffman in the movie, with the director, John Schlesinger. He loved working with the actors. He loved working with Waldo Salt, the screenwriter. And he also understands, I think, very well how important that movie was in his life, and his career. It, it's probably the best thing he ever did. He knows that. He knows he was good in it, and he's very proud of the performance he gave. So, you know, we, we got into a field where he was very comfortable. And, and I believed I believe the performance was real. I never knew for sure if I was going to get to Void or Hoffman. So I had interviewed people who knew them at the time. And what Void had to say matched up very well with what I'd heard from other folks. Now, he must have really wanted the role because he worked for scale. He worked for Scale. Well, this was his first movie, Uh, really. I mean, he'd been in one or two small things, but uh, he was desperate for this part. He had read the novel by James Leo Herlihy. Uh, He knew who Schlesinger was, and he really felt, I mean, Boyd is the kind of guy, and maybe one explanation of his political views today, when he goes in, he goes in all the way. He believed he was the right guy for this movie, he had, a, he had a a commitment to himself and a belief in his own abilities that was intense without being, you know, I would say overly narcissistic. Nonetheless, he thought he was the only guy who could really play Joe Buck. And uh, it's funny that Schlesinger, the director who was in charge here, didn't really want Voight and originally didn't really want Dustin Hoffman Mm. either for a variety of reasons. They weren't his first choices for these jobs. And yet in the end, as he said, he was so fortunate to get the two of them because they're fabulous together.
0: Uh, Actually, didn't Robert
1: Redford and Warren Beatty express interest in the role? Robert Redford and Warren Beatty both expressed interest in in playing Joe Buck. Uh, Schlesinger dismissed them in part by saying, "Can you imagine these guys ever getting turned down on time in Times Square? You know, uh, their idea of mm-hmm. them being <laughs> unsuccessful male hustlers didn't add up for him. He needed somebody a little a little younger, a little fresher. He was very interested in a guy named Michael Saracen. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they he, screen test together? Uh, they Voight and, te- and Saracen. They uh, well not together, but they did separate screen mm-hmm. tests." Hoffman, who ju- who'd already gotten the role of Razzo Rizzo, agreed to come in and screen test with about seven different guys. And uh, Sarazen was one of them, um, you know, uh, and Voigt and was one. And, and, and Schlesinger felt Sarazen fit the, his image of Joe Buck, more of the physical description in the novel. Uh, and he didn't and he didn't like Voigt's looks. He thought Voigt was too sort of clean cut dimply. Mm. Uh, he wasn't attracted to, to Voigt's looks. And so he wanted Sarazen. They chose Sarazen. They even not, they even fitted Sarazen with some of the costumes. But Sarazen was already signed with Universal. And once they had decided on him, Universal decided they wanted a lot more money for Sarazen than than Schlesinger and the producer, Jerry Hellman, were willing to pay. Remember, this is a very low budget movie. Nobody thought this was gonna be a successful movie. Uh, Nobody thought they'd make a dime off it. They wanted to do it um, because they thought it would be an important movie and something that Schlesinger especially wanted to do. Uh, So, Sarazen asked for more money. Uh, Jerry Hellman told me that uh, after that, every time they looked at these tapes, uh, Sarazen looked a little worse and John Voight looked mm-hmm. a little better. <laughs> and eventually so, they wound up giving it to Voight. And they're awfully glad they did.
0: So, How did uh, James Leo Herlihy, who wrote the novel that was based on, come to be mentored by both Anais Nin and Tennessee
1: Williams? Uh, that was pretty heavy, wasn't it? It's it's very heavy and very interesting. I mean, Jim he is a guy from Detroit, barely made it through high school, uh, from a lower uh, working class family in Detroit. He wants to be a writer. And yeah. an actor. And an Man. actor. He's a very handsome guy and a playwright. I mean, Jim he wrote, Herlihy- He wrote he Blue Denim. Artist.
0: He wrote a play called Blue Denim that was made into a successful film and His first novel, All Fall Down, was made into a movie with Warren Beatty. So uh, he uh, was, I would have thought he was already kind of hot.
1: He was, he was hot uh, in that era. Uh, uh, Blue Denim originally was a play that ran for several months on Broadway. Yeah, Yeah. he was becoming popular, but he was a, a, a very quirky inner person. He suffered from depression He was part of the sort of on the periphery of the gay arts community in New York in the early 50s. So he got to meet a lot of people, as I say, and he was a very handsome young man and very charming. But at the same time, he was aspiring to be an artist with a capital A. I mean, this is the era, you know, he's writing he's writing books that uh, are have are sexual in some ways, but he's not really out of the closet. So he's being cautious. But he yes, he was successful. And Anais Nin was part of this, the great erotic diarist, as we know her today from, you know, Mm -hmm. later in her career. But back in the in the 50s, she was a struggling uh, writer. She uh, had the hots for him in part. He was such a handsome guy. And in part because I think they recognized each in each other a hunger for success. Uh, She nurtured him. But as he became successful, she backed off. She, she had a tendency, a pattern of this. She did the same thing with Tennessee Williams to an extent, nurturing and impressing. But when they start becoming, when they started uh, becoming successful, uh, she grew alienated. But they so. were both gay, isn't yes. the, the men she was attracted to. But was
0: uh, Midnight Cowboy the first time that Hurley he wrote openly uh, about being gay?
1: Well, yes. I mean, it has some openly gay characters, uh, some some uh, some gay sexual moments, not very pleasant ones for mm-hmm. the most part. All the sex in Midnight Cowboy, both the novel and, and, you know, and the movie are, are rather transactional. There's no romance mm-hmm. there. But yes, Hurley, knows what he's writing about. I had kind of helped, you know, you know, as a writer, I was hoping that Jim Hurley, in his papers and diaries and letters would sort of walk, you know, walk me through Times Square in the, in, in the 50s and early 60s, because I knew Jim had spent a lot of time there. And the movie guy, He's very discreet. And But if you read the novel, you see that he, he knows the area. He knows wow. the culture. He knows how to pick up people. He knows what to do. He knows how to avoid the cops, all of that. And so I had to rely on what he put in the novel to help me understand who he was and what he was trying to get at. You said he was a depressive. He he wound up committing suicide. He did, though that was after he contracted AIDS. Uh, It's interesting. When he first meets Annius Nin, it's uh, 1947 or so at Black Mountain College, this art school in North Carolina. Hmm. And she comes down there to give a book talk. And there he is. And she's really, you know, smitten by this handsome young guy. He takes out a notebook and there's a chart in there. And she says, what's that? And he says, Oh, this is charting my moods. When it gets below this line here, I'm going to kill myself. Oh. Uh,
0: was, uh, oh, well, first let me tell everybody that I'm speaking with Glenn Frankel, whose latest book is Shooting Midnight Cowboy Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. It is published by Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. Uh, was, um, Midnight Cowboy, the book, uh, did it receive much critical attention?
1: And, you know, not as much as Jim's earlier novel, All Fall Down. Uh, He was disappointed in Midnight Cowboy because, you know, he thought it it really is his best book in many ways. Mm -hmm. But The New York Times gave it a very passing notice. A few people liked it. it. It went nowhere. But fortunately, at some point, it ended up in the hands of John Schlesinger, this British director, film director. John was coming off a, a few hit movies in the UK uh, and one, Darling that had also been a hit in the States. And if you recall, it had won Julie Christie uh, oh, Best Oscar. Yeah, the Oscar for really her first starring role. He also
0: did Billy Lyre and Far From the Madding Crowd from the Thomas Hardy novel, uh, although that wasn't exactly a hit. But still, they are also a far cry from the kind of subject matter he's tackling here on Midnight
1: Cowboy. Well, he's starting to get toward that kind of thing with Darling, which is also a movie with a lot of sex in it. But uh, it's not very happy sex and, and about a young woman who's you know making her way through swinging London by uh, jumping from bed to bed. He was like a lot of British talent, actors and directors, of course. Once he was successful, Hollywood beckoned. They had more money, uh, more, you know, uh, better technology. So John wants to make an American film, but he acquires this this uh, obscure little novel, uh, bleak little novel that the studios have already looked at and turned down. And uh, for a while, he couldn't get anybody to make it with him. He hooks up with a New Yorker, Jerry Hellman, a New York independent producer who doesn't like the novel very much either, (laughs) but really wants to work with Schlesinger. And he agrees. To help Schlesinger get this movie made. And they end up going to United Artists, which is a, a Hollywood studio, but very, very different than the others. For one thing, they don't have big properties out in Hollywood. They're not, you know, big studio warehouses and things and actors on contract. They go movie to movie. They've had some great success uh, making artistic movies. They're the, they're the folks who financed A Hard Day's Night and a number of other things. And to James uh, Bond movies? The Clint
0: Eastwood spaghetti westerns, uh, they made some pretty good movies for the time.
1: And they made some pretty good money. And remember, this is the mid to late 60s. Hollywood is undergoing a big transition. I mean, the old genres like cowboy movies and, you know, uh, movie musicals and biblical epics, these things are not attracting the same audiences anymore. The audiences are getting younger and they're getting a little more sophisticated and they want to see different kind of stuff. For example, The Graduate comes along in 1967, Dustin Hoffman's first movie, mm-hmm. and becomes a huge hit and not only makes a lot of money, but, it, but Dustin Hoffman becomes a counterculture icon. I think audiences were ready for different kinds of things, and United Artists was the kind of studio that was interested in taking risks. As I say, nobody thought they were going to make money off Midnight Cowboy, too bleak. You know, nobody thought it would make a dime's worth of profit, but they knew Schlesinger was a talented guy. uh, And they thought, okay, for one point one million dollars, that is for a for a minuscule budget, let's let the guy make the movie he wants to make.
0: Now, in The Graduate, Hoffman played a clean cut college graduate. Didn't Schlesinger think that he was too preppy to play Rizzo Rizzo? Uh, How did did. uh, Hoffman convince him that he he could be believable as a homeless person?
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, Schlesinger didn't want Hoffman or Voigt for this movie to start out. Uh, he, he saw The Graduate. He hadn't seen any of Hoffman's off-Broadway work where Hoffman had played a variety of very interesting characters over the years. But he'd seen The Graduate and he thought this little, uh, you know, nerdy white bread guy, there was no way he could play Ratso Rizzo. But, you know, Hoffman was a character actor. He's a guy who digs into parts, and he really wanted this role. After after The Graduate, actually, he was hungry for a role that would show him doing different things. And so uh, he convinces Schlesinger to meet with him at uh, Horn and Hardart near Times Square at midnight. Uh, Hoffman puts on a dirty raincoat, uh, Mm -hmm. worn out shoes. He doesn't shave for a couple of days. His hair's all greased up. He's limping as he comes into the automat. Schlesinger said that by 5 a.m., He was willing to give Hoffman the part. Hoffman <laughs> wore him out. They walked around Times Square together, and he could see Hoffman fitting in very well. And, and you, you know, we can see Hoffman, the guy we know now, with the ability to do all the different kinds of things he's done over the years, why he could make that work. And he did. But he I,
0: wouldn't he have thought of this as a risky role that might
1: have be a bit damaging to his career? He didn't care. He didn't care originally. He wanted this. This was part of his identity. He wanted to show that he was an actor's actor. Other people warned him. Mike Nichols, you know, the guy who cast him in The Graduate said, I just made you a big movie star, and now you're going to do this little (laughs) film. What are you doing? You know? Yeah. He didn't even um, have the biggest part. Exactly. That's the thing. He doesn't come in till the 25th minute of the movie. Mm -hmm. And frankly, over time, uh, he began to have some doubts not about his role, he's wonderful in the movie, he's totally committed to it. He and Void have a very collaborative, but also very competitive relationship in making the movie. But by the time the movie's made, he's a little worried. He goes to a preview, he told me, and you know, audiences, some people in the audience started walking out at a certain scene that takes place in the balcony of a Times Square movie movie house where one guy, you know, Mm -hmm. was having sex with another and uh, people left. And Hoffman was afraid. And then the movie got rated X and Hoffman was afraid that he was in a porno movie. And he, he immediately goes out and, and signs on to do a very uh, bland movie called John and Mary with Mia Farrow. I don't know if you remember that one, but uh, no, you know, neither does anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's the epitome of, a, you know, of a safe, uninteresting movie. Uh, and he's he's also queasy about the fact he's not really the star of the movie. It's not called Midnight Rat, Riz, Ratso. It's called Midnight <laughs> Cowboy. John Voight is in every scene, not Dustin Hoffman. But
0: well, we'll get to why it was rated X in a little while. But I'm curious about the, the screenplay. Uh, James Leo he uh, didn't write it. And uh, I understand Gore Dahl and Truman Capote were also considered uh, none of them. Uh, instead, a a blacklisted screenwriter, Waldo Salt.
1: That's right. They had trouble, uh, Jerry Hellman and John Schlesinger, finding the writer that they wanted. Uh, They gave it, uh, you know. uh, For time to uh, Jack Elber, who had who had done work off Broadway. They didn't his script didn't really capture what John and Jerry thought were the essence of the movie, which is the relationship between these two lonely, troubled characters. Uh, eventually, Waldo Salt's agent finds out about it. Waldo, as you point out, was blacklisted through the 1950s because he'd been a member of the American Communist Party. He's an, uh, an alcoholic with serious drinking problem. He finally gets, you know, the blacklist fades in the early 60s. But Waldo's career is really tanking. Uh, mm. But his agent, George Leto, finds out about this movie and convinces Jerry to talk to Waldo. Waldo writes a memo about the about the novel and about the the, the script he's seen. And it's uh, and Jerry likes it and he passes it on to Schlesinger and they agree to give Waldo mm. a shot. Now, Waldo comes to this thing and, you know, it's the most creative thing he's ever done. And he really rises to the occasion.
0: Now, Waldo did have a a sense of humor. He said about a film he had written, Taris Bulba, that it did more to destroy his career than the blacklist ever did.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I saw that movie when I I think I was 12 years old and I knew it stunk. (laughs) But uh, did this uh,
0: revive Waldo Salt's career or was this a kind of a one shot?
1: No, it it totally revived his career. First of all, at some point, uh, he discovered the joys of marijuana and and became a serious pothead, uh, which saved him a bit from alcoholism. Uh, you know, <laughs> but this, he won the Academy Award for best adapted screenplay. So this yeah. revived his career. He goes on to write Serpico with Al Pacino. Uh, he, he, he co-writes, uh, coming home, uh, the movie about, uh, Vietnam war veterans, disabled cre- Vietnam war veterans that win best actor for John Voight. And win Waldo co- he co-writes it and he wins another Oscar. So this was redemption and it wasn't just the screenplay. He's on the set every. Every day with these guys. He's working with them. When the scene doesn't work, he writes more. He talks to them. He said it was the best experience of his career. He was around really talented people, all committed to this project. And he's a key person on this. And so for Waldo, it was a reminder of why he got in the movie business in the first place.
0: It was filmed mostly on location in New York City. Hadn't then Mayor John Lindsay made it easier to film in New York by streamlining the process of applying for permits? Uh, Another reason I assume uh, that it was shot on real location, mostly in the Times Square area, is that uh, because uh, United Artists didn't have the big lots that some of the other ones did with fake New Yorks, they had to use the the real thing.
1: Well, that's right. But it was a creative decision, too. I mean, the technology had changed as well. You could now take a camera and do things out on the street that you couldn't have done 10 years earlier. Uh, Sound, everything, everything had changed. This never would have worked if it had been made on the MGM, you know, lot in Hollywood. Uh, There was no way they could do this. An important decision they made, though, was to film it in color when up till now, if you were going to make this kind of gritty movie, you could only do it in black and white. But color, again, the technology was changing. You didn't need endless lights to go out there and shoot color. Uh, so they, they, it couldn't have been made anywhere else. Uh, it gives the movie a sort of documentary feel. You really think you're in the you're in late 60s New York. And again, I remember it from college. A place that's pretty gritty and can be pretty raw in a lot of ways. You know, crime rates going up. New York's economy is beginning to fade. People There's are a garbage collector strike. Exactly. Uh, now, John Lindsay is interesting because he comes along when he's elected mayor and he sets up an office for film. And a lot of movies have been made in New York over the years, but mostly they didn't take advantage of of really of of the street scenes. Uh, And when people did make movie with street scenes, you had to pay off everybody in sight to get the permits or to be able to film. Lindsay changed all that. Uh, Jerry Hellman, the producer, told me it was so different. Rather than having to have an assistant producer out there with a bag full of five dollar bills to give to every cop (laughs) who goes by, they were able to get one stop shopping for their permits they even were able at one point their set designer took a two-room apartment down in the lower east side in a condemned building that was about to come down and they allowed them to take a bulldozer and uh, and move that and and pick it up and move that two-room thing all the way up to 127th street On the east side and put it in the Filmway studio to film the the, the apartment, the abandoned apartment where Razzo Rizzo and Joe Mm -hmm. Buck lived for a while. So they got full cooperation from the city and that helped them do this thing.
0: And it opened the way to an any number of films that emphasize the negative aspects of city life, the, the French Connection and, and Taxi Driver. Although New York was going through a, uh, a, a, a cultural explosion at the time, uh, uh, some pretty interesting things, including a lot of permissiveness uh, in the arts. But, but not all of the film was shot in New York. Uh, so some of it was in Big Spring, Texas, the... Uh, the, the, uh, the flashbacks?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the novel, the first half of the novel is set in Texas. That's where this character, Joe Buck, has grown up. He's raised, he's abandoned by his mother. He's raised by his grandmother. Uh, but she's not around much. He's a lonely figure, and he goes up to New York to deciding to do the only thing he thinks he can do. He he buys a cowboy outfit. This guy's not a cowboy to begin with. And he hits the streets in New York to become a male hustler. They weren't going to film a movie that took place half in texas they were focusing of course on the new york story but they decided to include what they called flash not flashbacks exactly but flash cuts that would Mm -hmm. give you memories that joe has of his time in texas that helped explain a bit about why he was such a lonely isolated guy what was motivating him his problems with connecting with other people and his effort to become this sexy prostitute as some way of, you know, of, of healing himself. Not a very successful way, I should add. Well, you know, initially with women, he didn't do so well, but he did better when he switched over to men. Well, yeah, he thinks he's going to go up to New York and wearing that cowboy outfit, which is sexy, I guess you could say. He was going to get middle-aged affluent women to pay him for sex. And there aren't any middle-aged affluent <laughs> women walking around Times Square looking Times for Square. <laughs> So the business model was shot from the beginning, and and he really becomes a sort of target himself for, you know, hustlers and other folks like Ratso Rizzo, who gets 20 bucks out of Joe's limited stash of money. You remember Sylvia Miles in this movie. She's only got a six-minute part toward the beginning, but she plays an aging hooker, and Joe thinks he's going to, you know, take $20 off of her for sex, and he ends up giving her $20 (laughs) Yeah.
0: Weren't so, many of the locals in Big Spring, Texas hired as extras, but not told what the movie was about? And uh, there were difficulties uh, in filming uh, there. Uh, the, the set was overrun by rattlesnakes, wasn't it, the, the, the set uh, for the, ra- the crucial rape scene?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, they looked to find an older house, an abandoned house on the outskirts of town, where they could send Joe Buck and his girlfriend from Texas uh, at the time named Annie out and then they would film this horrific uh, gang rape scene, each of them separately, uh, in black and white and then, as I say, cut it into the movie mm-hmm. at different places. Uh, well, they get out to the to the house, which is an old Texas house that had been abandoned, and the, in the morning to set up and they hear these sounds coming from underneath the floorboards. There are no basements in these Texas houses, but uh, uh, they've got some uh, a little la- uh, place underneath the floorboards at the bottom where the, the concrete blocks are. And sure enough, they find something like 50 rattlesnakes out there. Oh. So John Voight and, and uh, you know and Jennifer Salt, who are supposed to play these scenes, are back in Big Spring while Jerry Hellman gets together a sort of emergency posse of about ten guys with shotguns. And they come out and they slaughter fifty rattlesnakes during the course of the day. <laughs> they don't bother to tell Voight and Jennifer about any of this uh, for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, they film the scenes at night and. Uh, That was that. But this was just one of many, you know, many obstacles that they had to overcome and shoot things. Remember, we're in the summer in in mid, you know, in the middle Mm -hmm. of Texas. It's about 110 degrees out. Everybody's sweating. But, you know, they were going for authenticity. The Texas scenes are very poignant in their way, confusing to some in the audience because you don't know exactly what's going on. But you get a sense of what of the deep psychological wounds that this guy, Joe Buck, carries around.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
1: Stopping still I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes
0: I'm going where the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going where the weather suits my clothes before I get back to my conversation with Glenn Frankel, uh, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now and call five one six six two zero three six zero two, or go online to give to wbai.org to help keep this show coming to you throughout the week. Again, that number. 516 620 3602, or you can go online to give to wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your Financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am happy to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing Shooting Midnight Cowboy Art, Sex, Loneliness. Liberation and the Making of a Dark Classic by my guest, Pulitzer Prize winning author Glenn Frankel. But no matter what level you are able to show your support for this show and this historic station, that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. It all helps. So why not take a stand by keeping 100% independent, listener-funded community radio alive on the New York radio dial? At WBAI, we don't take funding grants or corporate underwriting of any kind. We don't run ads, and no one tells us what kind of show we can or can't do and and that's what truly independent media means so if you like the sound of that why not help us keep it going but please don't forget to make the contribution in the name of let it Locate at large and to everyone who has already contributed thank you so much and now i'm returning to glenn frankel who uh, has written a book called Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic, published by Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. And, of course, we had to play that saw that music uh, during this segment. But wasn't Leonard Cohn's Bird on a Wire and, and Bob Dylan's Lay, Lady, Lay among, weren't they among the, the songs considered for the film's theme song?
1: They were. They were. Dylan wrote Lay, Lady, Lay specifically for Midnight Cowboy. Really? Oh. Yeah. And Joni Mitchell wrote a ballad of Midnight Cowboy. Schlesinger had heard, though, this version Everybody of Everybody's Talking. It was on Harry Nielsen's "Aerial Ballet album.
0: Not the Freddie and, Neal version, not the original version by the composer. No,
1: not the original version. One uh, of my joys of this working on this book was talking to some of the people involved in this, a guy named Rick Gerard, who was the producer of Ariel Ballet, who had heard Fred Neal's version and thought it would be a great song for Harry Nielsen, who he was mm-hmm. producing. And Harry didn't want it at first because Harry didn't write Everybody's Talking, as you say, Fred Neal had. And all the other songs in Ariel Ballet are Harry's own songs. Nonetheless, he did it for Rick and um, Rick thought it would be an enormous uh, top 40 hit, and it wasn't at first. It went nowhere. But Schlesinger heard it when he was doing Midnight Cowboy, and, you know, uh, he, he loved it. He felt that it summed up in some way the sort of enigmatic, poignant background of Joe Buck, of his longing for a place where he could go or, and, and get away from people and be himself. And so Schlesinger ends up editing the film to what they call a temp track, uh, where he's editing it to everybody's talking, even though he's not sure he's going to be able to use the song in the movie. But he the other songs he hears them he loves the artists but he keeps coming back to everybody's talking and you know he not only uses it as the theme uh, as the song for the credits but it appears several times during the mm. movie itself including at the end of the movie and i think it really does in its own enigmatic way give you a mm. feel that adds a, yet another dimension to the art of this movie
0: yeah it is a perfect now There is a scene in the movie when Dustin Hoffman bangs on the hood of a taxi that cuts in front of him at a crosswalk and says, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. And everybody started saying that for a while. But was that scene improvised?
1: It's an iconic moment. Everybody remembers it. The taxi pulling into the crosswalk was in the script uh waldo salt had written it in six or eight months earlier i've got the drafts of those things but there's no dialogue in in the script uh, ratso just sort of flicks off the cab driver and they move on he's angry he may slam his hand down but there's no dialogue and what hoffman did uh this is one of the legends of midnight cowboy you know at first The claim was, well, the whole thing was just happened out of nowhere. It's a real taxi and a real driver who just happens to be trying to skip into the crosswalk, even though the light is turned. Well, no, uh, that was designed to be there. But Hoffman kind of brilliantly does this improv, stays in character and does these lines. And it's the lines, of course, that everybody remembers. And then Hoffman still, you go interview Dustin Hoffman and he stands up and he shows you how he did that. (laughs)
0: How did Andy Warhol and his people get involved in the party scene in the movie? Uh, Was there a a clash in culture between the movie cast and and the people from Warhol's factory?
1: Well, very much so. It's partly Schlesinger looking to capture sort of different all the different demographics of of New York in that era, all of the counterculture things that were happening. And it was a time where you can know you could go to an artist party and there might be someone off the street, a street people there. There was a mix and match of the wealthy uh, and the wannabes and and other people that was both pungent and sometimes dangerous. Schlesinger's partner, a young guy named Michael Childers, was sort of his, uh, you know, envoy to the counterculture of Andy Warhol. And Michael had met some of these folks and thought that, you know, there's a party scene in the novel. It's very different, sort of a beatnik party from (laughs) the early 60s with bongo drums. This is already when they're filming the movie, it's 68. And the idea of sort of having a psychedelic happening and having some Warhol-like people uh, really appeals to Schlesinger and he talks Warhol. He want, They want Warhol himself, but Warhol is sort of too canny to be in somebody else's Wasn't
0: movie. Wasn't he recovering from being shot at the time?
1: Well, he they'd already tried to recruit him and they were recruiting, they'd already recruited some of his superstars like Viva to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. In fact, she was getting her hair done when she was talking to Andy and heard the shots in the background. Andy is shot in early June. They've already started filming some of the movie, not the party scene yet. And yes, that Andy was shot by Valerie Solanus, uh, this uh, woman who thought that he had uh, betrayed her in some way. He almost died. Uh, mm-hmm. So Andy was not in the movie, of course, but Schlesinger was able to use Viva uh, and a number of other folks. They used a brief eight millimeter thing that some of Warhouse people had done And uh, and it shows up, and they film at again at Filmways up at 127th Street. They create a sort of loft set up there, and they have all they bus up the (laughs) the Warhol characters every day for, you know, uh, from the Village and they filmed for about five days, this sort of semi-orgy, uh, semi-movie, all these things. And in the end, they only use a few minutes of it, but it is, it is colorful and it is documenting yet another part of what was going on in New York in that era.
0: And did one of Warhol's associates, Paul Morrissey, direct a movie called Flesh about a male prostitute that was released just before Midnight Cowboy? How did well, the two films compare? Was, yeah. Did flesh portray male hustlers in a more realistic way?
1: Well, it certainly did. I mean, there were male hustlers in the movie in a way that wasn't true in Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, these folks were working on much different kinds of visions. Schlesinger, in the end, was making a movie, not a Hollywood movie exactly, uh, uh, but, a, but a movie that used authenticity but wasn't authentic in itself. Uh, Whereas Warhol was doing something very different, much more improv. Warhol was upset when he realized that um, Schlesinger and his folks had essentially just, uh, he felt exploited his superstars and that he could do a male hustler movie much better than them. And so that's when they went out and did flesh, Uh, you know, and, and sure, he was sure right about the authenticity of his movie, but Midnight Cowboy, as I say, is something very different. Uh, It's got the music. It's got this polished part of it. And so they were doing two very different things. Schlesinger clearly used Warhol and his people to get the effect he wanted of an authentic street scene, but not the reality of it.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Glenn Frankel, whose latest book is Shooting Midnight Cowboy. Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. It's from Faris Strauss and Giroux. This is WBAI New York, ninety-nine point five FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You mentioned that it was it got an X rating, but uh, when, uh, when United Artists submitted the film to the Motion Picture Association rating board, didn't it get an R? Why did uh, a UA executive decide to self-rate the, the movie as an X? Wouldn't that have limited its commercial prospects, including uh, its ability to advertise?
1: Well, it did, though they didn't have a high opinion of its commercial prospects to begin with this gets back to the way homosexuality was viewed in the 60s by the powers that be in new york and even the the liberal press like the new york times and harper's magazine there was a there was a strong homophobic uh attitude that stressed back partly because new york if you recall you know the upper classes were so enamored of psychoanalysis and the freudian psychoanalysts looked at homosexuality and had a whole interpretation of victims of strong mothers and weak fathers Mm -hmm. and you know narcissists and that you could cure homosexuality with psychoanalysis you know all this was based on almost no research But the attitudes were extremely negative and um, and and people were afraid of homosexuality. They thought it was like the pandemic, that it was something you could uh, contagious and that these folks, because they weren't, you know, because they could choose to be gay or not gay, were, were spreading the disease somehow. And it was a disease. This is the way people looked at it. Not everybody, of course, but. More liberals and uh, more people in New York than you would expect. And so Arthur Krim, who was the head of uh, United Artists and uh, uh, a great citizen and, and fundraiser and donor to the arts, he, wasn't, he liked the movie. He thought it was an excellent movie, but he was nervous about the, scenes, the homosexual scenes in the movie. Wasn't he
0: also upset that the film had gone way over budget?
1: Well, they were, United Artists, yes, uh, he, he was. Arthur, uh, David Picker, the guy who greenlit the film and who really took the uh, chance with this. I mean, they were very pleased with the film, uh, but it was a $3 million film that they'd originally budgeted for $1.1 budgeted for $1. Mm-hmm. $1 So that, But that wasn't what's driving them on the X rating. The X rating was their fear of homosexuality. Uh, the rating system had just come in, An R meant that young people could go, uh, was restricted, but they could go with their parents. Uh, Arthur Krim was nervous about this. He decided to rate it himself as an X-rated film. And now it's an R again, isn't it? Well, the poor ratings board was accused of being, you know, prudish by rating this thing an X, but they had nothing to do with it. And when a film was uh, won Best Picture, and remember it Mm -hmm. was the first and only X-rated film ever to win Best Picture, United Artists came back to the ratings board and said, "Okay, well, now it's gotten that sort of respectable, you know, best picture thing. We'd like to ask for an R. And the people in the ratings board basically said, well, we already rated it R. We're fine. There was no controversy, no discussion. And it became an R again. But it was it was attitudes about about homosexuality that drove the X rating. Um, United Artists did take advantage of the X rating for a while, while they had it, uh, because that too appealed to sort of younger audiences that were looking for something different. The X rating said, this is a different kind of movie. The ad campaign said, Midnight Cowboy is everything you heard it is. You know, so there there was a risque element that also gave it some sex appeal.
0: In an interview with Playboy magazine, didn't John Wayne call Midnight Cowboy perverted, a story about two
1: fags. Yes, he did. John Wayne was not a great. uh, I know this will surprise you to hear, but he wasn't (laughs) a a great fan of avant-garde filmmaking. He did think that Hoffman and Voight were terrific in the movie. They're both nominated for best actor the same year that he's nominated for True Grit. Mm -hmm. And uh, he beats them uh, and gets the best acting award. But he told friends that he thought that Voight and Hoffman were very, very good. Uh, so, you know, John Wayne could hold two conflicting ideas in his head at the same time sometimes. Uh, and in this case, he gave respect to his fellow actors even while he hated the movie. How many Oscar
0: nominations did Midnight Cowboy get? They got seven altogether,
1: uh, and won and- three. And won three. Uh, Schlesinger won for Best Director. He was so nervous uh, and worried that he didn't even come to the Oscars. He was filming uh, Bloody uh, Sunday, Bloody Sunday in London, and and he didn't leave, even though UA asked him to come. They thought he had a shot. So he wins Best Director. Waldo Salt wins Best Screenplay. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. And the movie wins Best Picture, which really surprised almost everybody. Again, this little film that they didn't think would make a dime not only got great uh, critical reviews and made good money, it won the Oscar. Its main competition
0: was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, also a buddy movie with two strong male leads. But can you think of two more different movies?
1: Uh, it's very hard butch cassidy is a real crowd pleaser it's a very entertaining movie and and newman, paul newman and robert redford are fantastic in it but they make no att- real attempt at authenticity you, you, the theme song from that movie that wins the academy award for best music is raindrops keep falling on my head uh which had not a whole lot to do with wyoming in the 19th century uh <laughs> Midnight Cowboy was a much more serious movie. The acting is very good in both movies, but Void and Hoffman are doing something with great authenticity and great significance. They're not just, you know, I don't mean to downplay Newman and Redford. I think they're fabulous in that movie. But Void and Hoffman, I can't think of two actors in a major American movie who are as good or better than Void and Hoffman. Uh, And so. That movie overcomes Butch Cassidy, essentially, to win the most important Oscar.
0: Well, you said the critics loved it. Well, Vincent Canby did, but Pauline Kael didn't at The New Yorker. What were her objections?
1: Well, you know, I think she felt that Schlesinger was a a superficial kind of entertainer and that his political, you know, his little uh, notions of, showing gritty New York were were uh, superficial. She, you know, Pauline Kale had her own sense of what she liked, the personal choices of what she liked and what she she didn't. She thought Voight uh, was wonderful uh, and rescued the movie in many ways. But other but other critics generally liked it a lot. Andrew Saris of The Village Voice, who was, you know, Pauline Kale's arch rival, mm-hmm. one might say. Uh, yeah. Well, Sarah didn't really love the movie either at, at, the, at the start, but I think, everybody, I think everybody came around to respect it. It was uh, such an enduring film. I think it still speaks to us today, and I think that gets back to this, as you call, the buddy relationship, which really is very complex. These two guys don't really like each other very much. They don't trust each other either. And they, they don't have much in common. common. No, they have nothing in common except their loneliness, their isolation, the fact that they are two of God's loneliest people and they're in a town where being lonely is the name of the game. I mean, New York can be a very lonely place, especially when you don't have five bucks in your wallet. Uh, And so they come to rely on each other. They have to own up to their own vulnerability in a sense. It's very hard for them and they don't really, they they would rather connect with anyone rather than each other. But in the end, they are forced to rely on each other. And that's the growth of that partnership and the and the wonderful acting that these guys do around it, I think is the things that makes this movie still a very valuable and very respected 52 years later. And
0: how well did it do at the box office?
1: It did surprisingly well. It made something like 45 million bucks its first year on a budget of 3 million and, you know, a couple million more maybe for advertising. It surprised everybody, especially the guys who made it. United Artists had agreed at one point to give Jerry Hellman, the producer, and John, and John Schlesinger, 60% of the net. Uh, in other words, after all expenses and everything else, they would get 60% of the profit because the United Artists didn't think there would be any profit. So they paid these guys off in, in Never Never Land money. And yet they both became, you know, multimillionaires because of this movie.
0: And... Uh... Voigt and Hoffman became stars. Schlesinger, as you said, made a number of other films, including The Day of the Locust and Marathon Man, where he worked with Dustin Hoffman again. And Salt wrote Serpico, won an Oscar for for writing uh, Coming Home. So uh, this was a a good moment for a lot of people and and, uh, some people think for movies as well. And uh, I'm so grateful that you agreed to talk with us today on our show. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Glenn Frankel, the the book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation and the Making of a Dark Classic, published by Farris, Strauss and Giroux. Another book in the works.
1: Yes, it's been hard during the pandemic because I got to get out and go places in order to do mm. this kind of work. But I have always loved Billy Wilder's film, The, the Apartment. And I've mm. been talking to people about it and and thinking maybe I'll try something. Again, I'm trying to marry a, an era, an historical era with a great film. And this is sort of the dawn of li- women's liberation. So it's a possibility. We'll see, Leonard. I don't know. I'm just enjoying, so lucky to have done this one and really enjoying talking about it. Thanks for having and, me. And having. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you get your podcasts on iTunes, we would love it if you could leave a review or a rating. It's It's a great way to help others discover our show. There are also links to all of our past shows our website large.com. and if you'd like to send me a question or a comment about a show my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org before I sign off I feel it's important to remind you that if you value the kind of informative in-depth interviews we bring you on this show I hope you'll step up and support WBAI right now By going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to to ensure that uh, we are here, uh, that that we're going to keep on coming to you. Uh, As I mentioned at the half, a great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy listeners who contribute $10 or more a month as sustaining members to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic by my guest Glenn Frankel. But please make sure that the tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. is Make it in that name. And one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. To and we hope you can join us again tomorrow when investigative journalist and regular contributor to our show, Bob Henley, will discuss his latest reporting on the important issues of the day. We'll see you then.